The most important things about intuitive eating that I see can be distinguished from dieting is that you, I love how you phrase that it's a, a, it's a process that we let our bodies guide us. Yes. And in a way that it's also a self-care framework in that it considers what is going on physiologically in your body, what's happening with you emotionally and mentally, and how do we take signals and cues from our bodies, from our emotion, from where we are at any point in our lives to know what my body needs, what care, what things we need to prioritize in caring for ourselves, whether that's physically, emotionally, mentally, and then follow that and then to respond to that. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm your host, Stacey Toth, and this week I'm joined by Mia Kwan, who is an anti-diet dietitian, which I can't wait to unravel, and a food and body coach. And you are here especially because I like to have topics that I care about, and um, Mm -hmm. I love finding resources for our listeners that support both this idea of health, but also being really aware of how detrimental to health diet culture is. And every time I find a resource, I'm like, please, please come on the show and talk to us. (laughs) So not only are you an anti-diet dietitian and food and body coach, but you're also a nutrition professor at Seattle Pacific University. Mm -hmm. So i I'm really excited you're here. You do amazing work to help us ditch diet culture and food guilt and body shame and build body respect and self-love. All of my boxes are being checked. Mm -hmm. And I know you work with clients directly at foodbodypeace.com with the umbrella of believing we can heal our relationship with food and our body to thrive in food freedom, body appreciation, and self-love. I know we have a few things that we're going to tackle today, but maybe you could introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. Thank you, Stacey, for having me. So a little bit about me, I think where I want to start is that this is actually not my first career. And I, nutrition, anti-diet, intuitive eating, all of these were really not in my vocabulary for a long time. I spent about seven years in communications and PR and didn't really think about food and nutrition in any particular way. And so in a way, I think I had a pretty protected relationship with food growing up where I didn't grow up in my household where we talked about, you know, good foods, bad foods, anything like that. All foods were welcomed. And looking back, I think that was helpful. However, seven years into my career, I found myself at a place where I was completely burned out, overworking, not taking care of myself, you know, pulling late nights, not sleeping enough, not really eating regularly regularly, all of that. And that was the first time that nutrition and food crossed my mind and got me interested in thinking about, huh, maybe I should start taking better care of myself. Maybe I need to look at what I'm eating. And then I went down this whole rabbit hole of all these opinions and people telling you what you should eat and shouldn't eat, what's healthy and not healthy. And it was so confusing. And so I found myself in this like rabbit hole of like, who can I trust? How can I educate myself? And that's how I decided 
to switch careers and become a dietitian. And little did I know, I thought I was going to become a dietitian who tells everyone to stop eating sugar and eat all their kale and quinoa. And those are not even foods that I like, but that's what I thought was quote unquote healthy. And then in grad school, I had a really amazing opportunity to do an adolescent medicine fellowship with teenagers with eating disorders at a children's hospital here in Seattle. And that is when all my thoughts about food, health, nutrition, weight was kind of shattered in a good way, in a very good way. That's when I was introduced to the idea of how bogus the BMI was, how people in larger bodies get eating disorders, how health and weight are not really the same thing, how a thinner body is not always a healthier body, the idea of weight bias and fat phobia, all of these things that, that just really changed my outlook and perspective on how we look at food and bodies. And it was really the first time that it dawned on me, yes, it does matter. You know, of course, I'm a science-based registered dietitian. I care about the evidence and the science. And there is a place for, quote-unquote, healthful foods, of course. However, not at the detriment of damaging our relationship with food, not at the expense of damaging our emotional, mental, and even physical health. I learned, you know, all the ways that restriction and diets backfire and increase our risks for eating disorders and in body image difficulties, all of this. And so it was a kind of a long-winded way, but uh, that where I came to the conclusion that, wow, I want to help people not only be healthy in their bodies physically, but make sure that we are looking at the person as a whole human being, because we can't separate our physical, emotional, mental self. And when I heard the quote from one of the pioneers in health at every size, Deb Burgard say, we cannot prescribe. Why are we prescribing for people in larger bodies, what we diagnose as eating disorders in smaller bodies, meaning, you know, we diagnose smaller bodies when they, as eating disorders, when they are restricting, when they are spending hours exercising, when they are cutting out foods. And yet those are the things that we tell people in larger bodies to do. And they're not only effective, they're not effective, but create even more host of problems. And so I became really passionate about advocating for all around health, for people of all sizes and all bodies, because again, health does not equal size. There are so many things about what you just <laughs> said that it's a good thing I was muted because I was like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but I, I love that you came to that conclusion with youth. I didn't know that part of your story. I don't know if you know, but I am a foster mom and we have had several youngsters between the ages of seven and 16 in our home. And one in particular has an eating disorder and the result of that being an effect of their trauma and how it manifests itself when they are feeling more vulnerable in their life, when they need mm -hmm. to have control is something that that plus the entirety of being an experience of a foster mom has really changed my perspective on life over the last couple of years and specifically public health, right? It, I think I started in this community as someone who was going through my own kind of N equals one experience and justified disordered eating and orthorexia with mm. health, right? Like, but I'm getting healthy and was obsessed with the scale and would skip meals yeah. and would do all these kinds of things to 
see the results that I wanted on the thinness of my body, despite the fact that I was losing my hair and I was, you know, Mm. having autoimmune flares and all these things. Food was just running right through me because I don't have a gallbladder. So I would like not eat and then I would have one meal and my body couldn't digest it. You know, so I had a myriad of these issues that I was not even genuinely was not seeing that that was hurting me. I was obsessed with the idea that I had finally found health for the first time Mm -hmm. in my life. But I very much was struggling in so many other ways that, you know, I had a thyroid nodule. I had, you know, all these things that were coming up at that time that I was just dismissing. And so as a result, I've become like this advocate, not only of being really aware of all the concepts that you just mentioned, health at every size, but also trying to educate on the truth about how harmful dieting can be and building health in different ways, right? Like what are some of the other ways, both from an emotional perspective, we talk a lot on the show about mental wellness, which, you know, I have a, I have a brother-in-law who died from a depression, bipolar addiction. I have, you know, experience as a foster parent. I myself was bulimic as a youth and we have neurodiverse house. Like we're, we, we have a lot of different experiences here. And from that, just really building in this foundation that there's a lot that goes on in everybody's lives. We can't possibly know what's happening in somebody else's home or their body. And we need to let go of this built-in societal judgment about mm-hmm everything. Like you said, fat phobia and how that affects ourselves and the way we talk to ourselves. You know, I would love if maybe, Woo. I know. <laughs> it's, I Well, that's why when you were talking, I was like, yes, 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 yes. Um, Same. Yeah. But I think one of the things that is, you know, really difficult with having built an audience originally off of this idea and then Mm -hmm. helping them transition to how we can still support health, right? It's this very nuanced gray area Mm -hmm. that is difficult to kind of squeeze into, right? Of how we can support our health, but also give ourselves the freedom. And I know intuitive eating is a topic we've discussed on the show before. And I think is a challenge in some sort of ways when we come from a lifetime of dieting, when we come from a lifetime of restriction, especially if we have health needs, for example, autoimmune disorders that we know, for example, certain foods like gluten might activate responses in our body. So I'm wondering, like, how, what philosophy do you have where you kind of bucket dieting and intuitive eating? And then I'd love to talk more about how this idea of intuitive eating can be brought into this more nuanced kind of, if you could see me, I'm hand talking, I'm a big hand talker, like this little wedge, right? This wedge between these, these different worlds of complete freedom and what we need to release in ourselves to kind of let our bodies guide us, so to speak. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much in there that we (laughs) need to unpack. And I think we can start with what, what stood out to me when you were talking about this was the idea that we are dynamic human beings and our lives are dynamic. You know, a lot of things are going on in our lives. And often when life is chaotic and feels out of control, the body becomes the scapegoat. And 
in a way, that's what a lot of eating disorders are about. I've had so many clients say at points in my life when everything felt out of control, my food and my body felt like one area that I could exert that control. But the thing is, when it comes to restricting, controlling food, whether that's in that more extreme category of having a clinical eating disorder, or whether that's in just this with this intention of, oh, I'm just trying to be healthy and I want to manage my you know, body and that's why I'm cutting these things out and counting calories or whatever it might be that we're doing in whatever form of dieting. The fact is that there is no possible way, and this is one of the biggest reasons why diets ultimately fail, they're not sustainable, they don't last long-term, is because there is no possible way that any set of any set of rules, which are essentially what diets are. They tell you what you can eat, what you can't eat, how much you can eat, how much you can't eat, all these rules. But there's no way that this one set of rule is going to be able to fit into your life as your dynamic life continues to change and you go through different life stages and life transitions of from you know being in college to to be having a career then maybe growing a family and then things happen in our lives and how is it possible that these one set of rules are going to fit into your life in that way it's impossible and so that's why one of the many reasons we start to feel okay in the beginning it feels like things are going well until i quote unquote fall off the bandwagon but it's not that you fell off the bandwagon. It's not that you lost your willpower. It's that this rigidity was harder and harder to sustain. There are physiological reasons why, and then there are, you know, all the other factors in our lives where it's impossible that we're going to be able to uphold these set of rules as things happen in life. We are human beings. And so dieting and controlling food really takes away our autonomy as opposed to this idea of intuitive eating. I, the, the, the most important things about intuitive eating that I see can be distinguished from dieting is that you, I love how you phrase that it's a, a, it's a process that we let our bodies guide us. Yes. And in a way that it's also a self-care framework in that it considers what is going on physiologically in your body, what's happening with you emotionally and mentally, and how do we take signals and cues from our bodies, from our emotion, from where we are at any point in our lives to know what my body needs, what care what things we need to prioritize in caring for ourselves, whether that's physically, emotionally, mentally, and then follow that and then to respond to that. The most important things about intuitive eating that I see can be distinguished from dieting is that you, I love how you phrase that it's a, a, it's a process that we let our bodies guide us. Yes. And in a way that it's also a self-care framework in that it considers what is going on physiologically in your body, what's happening with you emotionally and mentally, and how do we take signals and cues from our bodies, from our emotion, from where we are at any point in our lives to know what my body needs, what care what things we need to prioritize in caring for ourselves, whether that's physically, emotionally, mentally, and then follow that and then to respond to that. From that to saying, okay, now let me try to listen to my body. That's hard. There's a lot of nuances there and there's a lot of things that we need to unlearn. And so the idea of wanting to 
consider our body's health. Yes, that is important. However, there's a reason why this idea of in, in intuitive eating, we call this idea of caring for health gentle nutrition because we can't start there. When we're coming from a place of having a lot of these internalized false beliefs and values and rules that came from diet culture, we can't come from, start from there and say, okay, now I'm going to try to listen to my body. Now I'm going to do the best I can while still considering health. It, it gets too complicated when we try to do that. And so we have to start with examining all the false beliefs and all the rules that really did not work for me, that did not serve me while I was dieting and examine those of why did I believe that? Is that actually true? Is that actually serving me? If not, we need to go through a process of unlearning that and replacing that with values that do serve us, that I am going to honor my body's fuel needs. I am going to work on not seeing food as good versus bad and welcome all foods. And we have to really first work on our mindset and beliefs in that way before we can dive into that place of, I want to consider my health and gentle nutrition as well, because if we try to do that too early, it can really kind of complicate and become another set of rules where we say, oh, I'm not dieting anymore. I'm doing this for my health. However, that can become more of this rigid rule once again. But with all that said, this is the last thing I will say on this because I feel like I'm talking for too long. But when we have a condition like an, an intolerance or maybe an allergy where we have direct physical responses to certain things, like when you said, you know, gluten or allergies with maybe peanuts, milk, whatever it might be, of course, we don't want to we don't want to continue to eat something or do something when we know there is going to be a direct physical consequence. And so knowing that, knowing what kind of direct triggers we have with certain foods and that do not process well in our body and saying, I am going to try to eliminate that because because I know what, what the direct consequences are, that can be done from a place of love and caring for our bodies, not from a place of being a rigid rule. But again, that can be a little bit of a tricky line in the beginning when we haven't done that work to identify what false beliefs that we need to first unlearn. So there's a lot of nuances there. And that's why often even though in theory, intuitive eating sounds so simple when it says, just listen to your body's cues. There's so many things that we have to consider and start small in order to actually be able to implement it. I love that you said, well, a lot of what you said, but specifically this idea that we need to unlearn before we can identify what foods we really do have an intolerance or an allergy to, because I come from you know, years of specifically in the paleo community, believing that there were so many of these foods that I quote unquote, couldn't eat. And I think specifically, I actually talked about this last week with another good friend from that community who has also branched out in the Patreon. So listeners, if you miss that, go back and listen to Cassie and I talk about gluten, where she has extreme migraines from gluten and has found a way to incorporate sourdough, for example, into her life and not have migraines. And I think we're both in this journey of unlearning a lot of kind of what we originally believed and then also allowing ourselves the space to not have the fear around the around the foods and the stress to like unlearn those behaviors to give our bodies the space to actually eat something and not 
have the reaction be our own body's stress response instead of the food response. And I think that's kind of difficult for a lot of us coming from this history to understand because it is real. It is actually happening. You know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people hear, oh, that's your stress response. And they feel like someone is telling them that what is happening in their body isn't real. Absolutely. That's not the case, right? It's, it's definitely happening. The question is, what is it happening from? Is it happening from years of fear and stress around food? Like you said, you know, bringing joy back to food, I think is, is really important. Or is it actually that your body is responding to a food item in a negative way? And in order to know that, we have to do all this other work first, which sucks because it's hard to do all that other work (laughs) while you're also still like restricting. And, you know, the food is like one quote unquote addiction, right, that we can't just go cold turkey on. And it makes it so hard from a dieter's perspective or, you know, any of this to to fully kind of find that freedom because you can't just not eat. And so you have to kind of like be working through your addictions or your, you know, addiction to dieting, so to speak, while also Mm -hmm. still eating, which makes it complicated. So I'm wondering, what do you think are some of the best ways to start to kind of let go of that, to ditch diet culture, to embrace some of these unlearned behaviors? Mm -hmm. I think it starts with really understanding what diets actually do. A lot of my clients, again, who come from this long history of being on and off diets for multiple decades say, had I known how damaging diets really are and that they would actually make me you know, gain more weight in the long run, that they would slow down my metabolism, that they would damage my relationship with food, I don't think I would have done it for so long because they thought all that time that they were doing something good for their bodies. They thought they were, this was the only way they could pursue health. And becoming to learn that that's not actually the truth was, you know, they go through kind of stages of, you know, being angry and being fired up to, why didn't anyone tell me this? And then on that journey of, okay, now I'm ready to do things differently. So if anyone feels that way, that you feel kind of duped by diet culture, I want to let the listeners know that you're not alone. And it wasn't your fault that the diets felt like you that made you feel like you were a failure. It's actually the diets that failed. And then to really examine those rules and beliefs one by one, I think is a very important starting point. A lot of us kind of jump over this stage and that's why we also find ourselves kind of back to dieting or going back to rules because we never went through this unlearning phase. And the best way to do the unlearning phase, I often ask clients to write down all your rules and beliefs about food, nutrition, health, weight that you've been impacted by. And then we can go through them one by one to see what is actually true, not true, why they're not true, and to find a way to shift those beliefs so that they can serve you going forward as you continue to learn how to listen to your body, as you continue to learn how to care for your body in a healthful way, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally. And so that can be a pretty long process because 
clients will often say, okay, I thought I did that initially. And here we are, you know, with yet another rule that's been impacting me. Maybe I'm just going to throw a random one out there. Something like I can't eat bread more than twice a day, right? When they maybe have initially already worked on carbs are unlearning the fact that carbs are not evil. And we will talk about all the, the reasons why carbs are not evil. And so they kind of overcame the fact that, okay, I can eat carbs. And then a couple of weeks later, they come back and say, oh, I found that I am up against this another, yet another rule that I didn't think about that was, I can eat carbs, but I can't eat it. I can't eat the same type of carbs more than once a day. And then again, we will kind of talk about that. And so these things will continue to kind of creep up, but as if we can't identify them and debunk them, so to speak, and replace them with a belief that can support our physical, mental, emotional health and our relationship with food and continue to work on that in practice, that can be one of the step-by-step -step ways that we can slowly but surely undo the damaged, undo the damage from the diet culture and diet rules into placing, replacing them with more healthful ones that do serve you in the long run. I love that. And I do think that listeners, if you've been listening to these shows, you're doing that work. So I just want everybody to kind of like give themselves a pat on the back. They're, they're starting and they're doing the work. And I love the idea too of sitting down and writing down all the food beliefs that you've come to. Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful, I think of that also, like you could even do that journaling yourself, right? And then knowing what you know now from different information, how can we kind of work on talking to ourselves when those thoughts come to mind, right? Like when you, your brain is not going to immediately stop thinking that, you know, your choice to have bread twice in one day is, you know, makes you a bad person just because you've learned that it isn't. Now, when that thought comes up, if you've written that down on a piece of paper, you know, it kind of helps retrain your brain a little when the thought comes up to say, nope, I'm not thinking that mm -hmm. I'm unlearning that. Nope. <laughs> you know, so exactly. I love that idea. I know for me, one of the things that I have had a hard time wrapping my brain around with intuitive eating to learning to let go of some of that thought process is how modern food is manufactured to intentionally trick our brains. Right. Yeah. So what I mean by that is maybe intuitively in a world where there wasn't, you know, food additives that enhanced flavors or foods, you know, made with high carb and high fat, because that's a solid energy choice that my body gravitates towards because, you know, I don't, we're going to talk about that. I, this is kind of this thing that I'm working on. So in a world where those things didn't exist, I might be interested in a banana and an avocado. But instead, what my brain says is like, those potato chips with the food additives are the place to get that. How do you kind of process and reconcile that in? And I think part of my unlearning is learning to recognize those things and saying to myself, mm -hmm. do I want a banana and an avocado? And sometimes yes. And sometimes it's like, nope, you want the chips. But it's it's hard for me to fully embrace this idea of intuitive eating because of manufactured foods that like literally have been made to trick our brains into wanting not just one, right, of, mm -hmm. of that. How... How do you work with clients from that perspective? Can I ask you a question, Stacey? Please. <laughs> Help me unpack what I got going yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. 
do you know anyone in your life who can and look at, you know, the potato chips and the ice cream and they might have some and say, okay, I'm good. And then they, it's just, they move on and they don't feel that they're lured by, you know, the enhanced flavors of, of that and can see it in a similar way as they would view maybe an apple and a banana and things like that. Do you know anyone like that? I don't actually. You don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just you bo- surrounded you bo- by a lot of people with problems. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not alone, but there are, you know, people like that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Where, right. We all live in this kind of world where we have those foods, abundant foods that are manufactured in this way. And, you know, there is some truth to that where there is this, you know, intricate food engineering happening to, to enhance those and draw people. However, it's also interesting when we look at the research that, for instance, when they looked at the brain MRI of two groups of different people, one group of people who have been on and off diets and have restricted and have controlled food versus people who have never really been on diets their whole life and just ate what sound good. How many of those? There's like four people on the whole planet, right? There's actually quite a good number of them. I need their numbers. I'm just I'm you need their kidding. numbers. No, know, I'm super but, interested in this. I'm sorry. Yeah, but but it's but it's super hard. I know because you know it's the majority of the culture that we live in continues to bombard us with the messages that we need to restrain ourselves from these quote unquote bad foods and all this. And so I'm not. I, I hope it doesn't come off as like I'm not, you know, dismissing what you're saying. I totally hear you. And yet when they but there, those people do exist. And, and in a way, I was able to kind of grow up in that way where there really wasn't talks about good food, bad foods. And I was offered chips as much as I was offered fruits and vegetables. And so I was able to grow up thinking that, you know, there it wasn't particularly you know bad. I never really felt controlled by it. But I also fully acknowledge that I come from a place of the privilege of having to grow up with fruits and vegetables. Not everyone does. That's a whole other area yeah, of yeah. access to food and food security. And of course, that also plays a role into whether we have that privilege to experience that or not from the get-go. And yet when we look at the brain MRI studies of people who have been on diets all their lives, on and off diets, and then and grew up with those messages of good food, bad foods, and we need to control the bad foods versus, you know, all foods fit. It's interesting when they looked at their brain scans when they were eating the tr- quote unquote treat foods, the sugary foods, that the response of the, the dopamine response of that lit up in the brain, because yes, you know, food, those sweet foods have those feel good chemicals. And that, again, this is another area, but that doesn't mean they're addictive because those areas of our brain also light up when we are hugging people and listen to music and Absolutely. hold babies. Yep. And that doesn't mean that we're addicted, to it. but the response of it, that intensified, we saw intensified response in the brain activity in the group of dyers, which leads evidence to the fact that when people feel out of control around certain foods, it is not just a natural response when we have that intensified response to these foods. It's actually intensified through the history of being deprived of those foods and restricted of those foods. Does that make sense? And so it's, you know, when we talk about the so-called overeating or binge eating, this does not really happen in people who have free access to all foods. The feeling of binge eating or overeating is always preceded 
by restriction. And that's why we talk about the restrict and binge cycle. It's kind of like, you know, holding your breath under the water and you can hold your breath for some time, but they're at some inevitable point we're going to have to come up to the surface for air and go it's going to be this like such a good analogy yeah Yeah. a big gasp of air right when you when you're holding your breath under the water for so long and come up for air it's not going to be this like calm one shallow breath of right and that's what restriction does is that it builds up deprivation and so it's like i give this story let's say I say, starting tomorrow, I'm running this nutrition class, and for six weeks, no one in this class can eat ice cream. What is everyone going to go home and eat tonight? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're craving ice cream tonight or not. Suddenly, there's this urgency that, oh my God, I can't have ice cream for the next six weeks. I must have it tonight. So everyone's going to go home and eat ice cream, regardless of the if they actually want it or not. So you know what? The dep- deprivation hasn't even started yet. But even that thought of deprivation can do this. The thought of deprivation can suddenly create this urgency. I call and it... Then- I call yeah. like, and then when it's over, so my analogy, which is not nearly as good as holding your breath underwater, is this, there's a lot of people who do like these 21 day, 30 day challenges, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. we're restricting certain foods. And then at the end, I call it falling face first into a pizza buffet, right? Yeah. Like, like it, it's, it's not, oh, I've, I've learned what foods affect my body in a negative way, and now I'm going to love my body and make choices that nourish and fuel me going forward. It's like, no, now I've been so restricted of these foods, I'm going Mm -hmm. to the pizza buffet and then the ice cream buffet, and then, you know, it's the gasping for air. That's such a good analogy. Yeah. And another way to look at it is, is so, you know, going back to the six weeks of, you know, six weeks or 21 days of what you shared, you know, it can be the same thing when we have this kind of restricted period in the first week, it's going to be okay. Right. These people, let's say this hypothetical class where you, you're not able to eat ice cream for six weeks in the first week, it's like, okay, there's ice cream, but I'm good because the deprivation hasn't built up so much yet. But Come week two, week three, now you're walking in front of an ice cream shop and you smell the ice cream and it's like, ooh, ice cream, but I can't have it. But this one block of invisible, one invisible block of deprivation builds up. And then the next week you go to the grocery store and before when you went to the grocery store, you never really thought about ice cream. You didn't think about ice cream all the time. But now every time you walk in front of the freezer aisle, it's like, ooh, ice cream, but I can't have it. Another invisible block of deprivation builds up. And so I call this like the invisible tower of deprivation continues to build up, build up, build up over time throughout the six weeks or the 21 day detox or fast or whatever it might be. And then, you know, as it continues to build up, this tower is bound to topple over at some point. Maybe you do make it through that first initial 21 days. Maybe you do make it through the six weeks, but you've built up deprivation during that time. And so then, you know, some day on after weeks out, you come home, you're tired, you're stressed, and you haven't eaten for a couple hours. You open the freezer and someone in your family put a gallon of ice cream in there. And then this is, I like to call it the what the heck effect. It's like, what the heck? Like, I'm too tired. I'm stressed. I don't care anymore. And at that moment, it's not going to be this mindful one scoop of ice cream, right? Because you're not just eating for that moment. You're eating for all that invisible deprivation that had built up to that point. That's what a binge is. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, our preferred protein of choice. 
I love that we can get a box and have it shipped to our doorstep in 100% recyclable boxing. If you use them in the past, it's time to give them another try. They have so many new options and using the podcast link can save you big in doing so with free bacon for life. That is worth signing up even just for one month to give it a try, especially since you also get $10 off your first order. ButcherBox isn't just a B Corp. They're focused on quality for you and the planet, but also the animal. With humane and sustainably raised meat, you can be assured that the beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones, shipped for free, frozen right to your door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. It allows us to be prepared whether we meal plan or not. Or maybe you're in donut land, and when you're ready for protein, the convenience of having a freezer full of the most nutrient-dense version on hand to nourish and care for yourself is huge. I can't tell you how many countless times I have wanted a steak right before menstruation and am able to honor listening to my body by pulling one out of the freezer. It's also great to update your selections for grilling season, and if you're not sure of your summer plans, you can pause when you're away or change whenever you need. Get summer sizzling started with this special ButcherBox deal for just you listeners, free bacon for life of your whole membership forever, plus 10% off. Seriously. Now I want a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash wholeview and use code wholeview to get one pack of free bacon in every box for the life of your membership, plus $10 off your first order. That's butcherbox.com slash wholeview and use code wholeview to claim this deal. Woot woot! My Target Clean Cleaning Guide is finally here. You can download it and the clean personal care guide I already created at realeverything.com slash target. These are all products that we either use or recommend based on extensive research on my part. I have been looking into this for so long and I'm excited to share it with you. These are things either available in store or online at affordable prices and I specify if they're sustainable, B Corp, biodegradable, etc. Of course, none compare to the standards of Beauty Counter, which check all the boxes, and they've extended their Clean for All 30 code for 30% off Beauty Counter all summer long. Choose Stacy Toth to support the show and get a special thank you from me. I love to follow up and make sure you're happy. In fact, if you ever have any skincare questions, just email me for a free consult, stacy at realeverything.com. Switching to safer can be expensive. That's why I created the Target Guide and love to help people switch to safer for less. Let me help you find ways to choose the right products for you at the best price. Choose me, Stacy Toth, no E, at checkout to use code CLEANFORALL30 when using an email that's never purchased before for 30% off your order. You'll also help Beauty Kenner's mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone through health protective laws and you'll support my woman-owned small business. Get yourself savings with 30% off using code CLEANFORALL30 at beautycounter.com slash S-T-A-C-Y-T-O-T-H. At checkout, use code CLEANFORALL30 for 30% off your order.
I I love this analogy because I can see how in this world, it's not the ice cream that's bad, so to speak. And I'm using quotation marks when I say that. It's this idea that our behavior around ice cream has created this cycle. And our idea that it is bad is then perpetuating this idea of, not being able to control ourselves around it because we restrict so much. So I wonder if we can dive more into this idea of what we all might perceive as bad foods. So we both mentioned carbs. I know carbs are it's like a, it's like a black hole, a can of worms. I don't know, Kugelblitz. Do you watch Umbrella Academy? Right? It's like this this huge category of everybody has an opinion on and this idea that there are whole nations of countries who are incredibly healthy, longevity-wise, right? When we define health and we're looking at health, you know, nations who are eating a lot of rice, for example. And then here in America, where we have incredible health problems and we're demonizing carbohydrates, is mm-hmm. an example that I like to use for people when we're talking about carbs are bad, period. So I'm wondering how... You approach this idea of bad foods. Again, I'm using Mm -hmm. quotation marks when I say that. And, you know, from a mindset perspective, how we can all kind of work towards this letting go of some of this restriction and and all of this that we've built up over a lifetime. Those of us that aren't the four people who have never dieted in our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm not even going to go into the whole car conversation. That could be a whole other thing, but I love educating people about the science of carbohydrates. That's when I put my nutrition professor hat on. And that's when a lot of my students are mind blown about when they actually learn about the science of carbs. However, yes. So there are no absolute bad foods. Carbs are not bad. You can eat carbs. Carbs are actually our body's preferred fuel that we need to have in our diet. That said, so how do we let go of the idea of good versus bad foods because it doesn't really serve you and only makes you feel more out of control around food is to work on neutralizing all foods and giving ourselves non-judgmental permission to enjoy all foods. And I like to use another analogy of, you know, I know when we're coming from a place of restricting and dieting, when you say, well, just listen to your body. And sometimes it's going to crave cupcakes and sometimes it's going to crave carrots. And then you might say, no, I'm always going to crave cupcakes. And so then I will never eat carrots. But the reason that you might feel that way is because now there's this like halo around cupcakes. When you look at them, you're not able to look at carrots and cupcake in the same way because carrots are the carrots are the quote unquote good food. And they're on this like neutral plane. And yet the cupcakes are this like elevated. It has this like ah, halo around it. So it's like every time you see you're presented with a cupcake and a carrot, you're like, of course I want the cupcake. So the process of neutralizing all foods is to take that halo effect away from the cupcake so that you can truly see cupcakes and carrots on kind of an equal plane. And then you can ask your body in a given moment to say, okay, body, right now, what do you want? The carrots or the cupcakes? And I promise you, even if you have 30 plus years of dieting, you can get to a place where you see all foods pretty equally. I have a client who used to say, I can never have Pop-Tarts in the house because if I do, I'm going to just go through the whole box. And we worked on neutralizing Pop-Tarts. A couple weeks later, she came back and said, oh my God, I can't believe I have a half open box of half eaten box of Pop-Tarts in my pantry. And I forgot about them in the past week. And so that's what can happen when you 
stop seeing these foods in a bad light and work on giving yourself permission by saying, you know what, I can have this food. And what I recommend when you start this process is not to open all the gates and like suddenly have all these previously off-limit foods in your house, in your pantry, but to start with one item at a time so that you can kind of go through the process of getting used to having that food around, to getting used to the idea that, you know what, I can actually eat this when I want to. And in the beginning, you might feel like you are still eating a lot of it, but I also use, I use a lot of analogies if you haven't noticed yet, but there's going to period, going to be a period where there's this pendulum. So think about the pendulum and you're swinging from one end, which is diet land or deprivation land to the other side of the pendulum, which is donut land. And a lot of my clients get this analogy. They're like, okay, I'm in donut land with pop tarts. I'm in donut land with cakes before you can get to this middle ground of discernment. But I promise you, when you give yourself that full permission to eat it, when you truly want it, you will be able to get to that place of discernment because you know what, if you were to be eating that, let's stay on the pop tarts all the time, it's not going to make you feel good. And you're going to, your body's going to be like, you know what? I actually don't need a whole box of pop tarts. I can eat one and then save the others for later because I don't have to go crazy when I see them because we are allowed to eat the pop tarts when I want to. I, I'm assuming you don't have a time period that you see most people sitting in donut land. But I know that that's a question, right? Like how Mm -hmm. long would one expect to be in donut land? And then also how to deal with the inevitable weight gain that is likely associated with being in donut land and then the guilt and shame of that, right? Like it's it's this whole cycle Mm -hmm. of then feeling like, I think this is where I see a lot of people get stuck. They get into that part and then they Mm -hmm. start the restriction again versus staying in donut land until their body finally says, no, you know what? I really want a smoothie with spinach for breakfast today, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And and that's a good point. When you find yourself stuck in that place, that's a great reason why working with someone through this process can be really helpful. It's hard to just kind of power through this when you don't have the experience and the assurance of how to navigate through these waters, because there's a lot of nuances and And it's different for each individual. That's another thing. And yes, I do get the question a lot of how long am I going to stay in donut land? And it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on what is the intensity of the halo on that particular food? How long have you restricted? What other beliefs do you have around food? How? So it, it depends on many, many factors. And even for a particular person, how long you stay in donut land for one particular food can be different from how long you will stay in there for another kind of food. And so it really has to be looked at with, you know, that holistic kind of view of considering all the factors in your particular case, and then working through having tools to work through those icky moments when the fear creeps up of what's going to happen to my body, or I feel so guilty. So there's a lot of layers to work through in this process, so to speak. It's not just, you know, this One way of like, here's what you do and everyone follow and you're going to be fine. And that's why, you know, we have to have a lot of compassion and patience and kindness for ourselves in this process, because how long, how many years have you spent in diet culture? And then how long have you been working on neutralizing foods? That's often a question I ask clients to give them a little bit of way to look at it with perspective that if we've been in diet culture for 10, 20, 30 years, 
I'm not saying that that's how long it's going to take it to get through that place of looking at foods neutrally, but it's likely not going to happen just in a couple of days. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as soon as you said it, I was like, mm. so I think this idea, honestly, that I think the post that I originally came across of yours in social media that sparked my interest was this concept of embracing bad foods, of being in donut land, so to speak, of feeling okay with Pop-Tarts, not just giving yourself permission, but also fully embracing this idea that bad foods can be good for us, not Mm -hmm. just that bad foods aren't bad, which is a concept that I've heard and said myself, but I'd love if you could talk more about this idea of bad foods having the ability to be good for us. And I would argue, let's take away that idea of bad foods altogether. Like that's kind of the whole point of neutralizing foods is not seeing foods in this bad light. And I would often ask clients when they say, oh, donuts are bad. Like, what do we mean by that? Bad, right? Like, And they might say, well, there's too much sugar. Well, what is too much sugar? You know, too much sugar can only be looked at in a place of, well, looking at our whole diet, looking at our entire diet, you know, because there can be two people who both eat one donut every single day. And let's say, are we, and does that mean both of them are having too much sugar? Well, Well, it can be very different because maybe one of these people are eating you know, a donut every day and also not eating proteins enough, not eating enough fruits and vegetables and continuing to fill up their diet with only, you know, foods that are similar to the donuts as opposed to another person who is eating a donut, but also have a varied diet. So that's, that's one example of how we can look at, it's not a food that is absolutely good or bad, but in context of what a person's diet kind of looks like, and not to mention the fact that all foods have some nutrition value. Those sugars and the calories in the donut still give you fuel, still gives your body fuel. We probably don't want to fill up our fuel tank with just those, but the fuel from the donut is fuel nonetheless. And to add to that, food's purpose is not only the nutrition, nutrients and the fuel, that's one purpose of food for sure. But food is also joy, it's connection, it's love, it's celebration, culture and tradition. Can you even imagine a celebration or a social gathering that does not center around good food? If you, you know, I don't want to go to a birthday or wedding that doesn't have cake, if they only are going to give me veggie platters, right? Like why do we, how do we, you know, function around food and we get to experience different cultures and we get to live a more full life by embracing all the other purposes of food that we're meant to embrace. Because when we limit those other purposes of food, we limit life. I have been to so many events and not had cake. It makes me sad when I hear you say (laughs) that. I am, I am a celiac, so it's different for me, but Mm. there have been Mm -hmm. so many cases also where there were foods that retrospectively, I wish that I would have partook of the celebration that I now can. So for example, I thought I couldn't do corn for a really long time because Mm. I had stressed myself out into thinking that corn was causing reactions. And then I was giving myself that stress response when I would eat corn. And then I had to realize that I had accidentally been eating a bunch of different foods that had corn flour or corn starch or these kinds of things. And I wasn't reacting. And then I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I see what's happening here. Yeah. I, I 
think I totally agree with you that I don't like using the word bad food. And I was I was using quotation marks when I said it. But I think, you know, one of the difficulties is that, you know, we have all these kind of like manufactured foods on this one hand, right? And then on the other hand, I also was thinking as you were talking about donut land, and I'm sure you have experience with this, is someone who's diabetic, for example, like can't be in donut land and have a lot of sugar is different than someone who has, you know, a a different metabolism, not just the foods that they're eating, but also our bodies are also bio-individual. And so when we talk about foods that one might react to, you know, we have a lot of listeners with autoimmune disease and have done kind of self-elimination and often get stuck in that phase of eliminating a lot of foods and then when they try to bring them back seeing a response of some kind and I'd love to kind of give a leading answer here right and that part of this that I've become aware of is a stress response associated with some of those foods and just like diet culture where I had told myself I couldn't eat carbs and built an orthorexia around it I think I had also built the structure for myself and I'm I'm assuming that some of our listeners are also kind of like stuck in this place of fearing bringing those foods back because of, you know, not wanting to see health symptoms. And in a world where, for example, a diabetic would need to be very aware in bringing in going to diet a donut land, for example, right? Like that's an entirely different experience than someone who does not have to be. What is your approach to kind of navigating those different worlds when there is those true biological needs that we need to be aware of, but also we have to get to a place where we let go of fear in order to be able to have that freedom that we truly need and want. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about the stress response, it's so true. I often talk about how it matters, you know, what state of the body that we put the food in as much as what we put in the body. Does that make sense? Because it's like, you know, you, you can have two people who are eating the same type of diet and eating pattern. And then one person is always stressed out and afraid what the food is going to do to them. They're always anxious. They're always uneasy. And they eat those same foods versus someone else who is eating the same exact foods, who is in a relaxed state, not anxious. They're calm. The body's going to react differently. Right. And so this is just one example of the mindset that we have and the beliefs that we have about food can actually impact us physiologically. So there's that one piece. And so that to say that there is benefit on incredible benefit on healing our relationship with food and our bodies and prioritizing that before we dive into any of the other aspects, because first we want to create a calm, relaxed, safe environment for ourselves and our bodies to be able to, you know, optimize the foods that we're actually eating. And of course, I'm not saying, you know, we have to, we have to exclusively work on just one thing and another. The other health piece is important too when we're talking about specific conditions, but even with specific conditions for diabetes, like that's a good example. And I've actually had clients, many clients who were either in pre-diabetes stage or, you know, their blood sugars are a little out of whack and they got afraid that, okay, now I need to go back to dieting. And that's also one of the problems with how diet culture also co-ops our 
health and medical care, where in reality, even with a condition like diabetes, it doesn't have to be that strict control. And so there are many ways that we can still honor the body's cravings for these type of foods, because even with diabetes and blood sugar control, it doesn't mean that your body can't eat any carbs. Actually, it means your body needs to have carbs in a consistent, in a spread out way, not just, you know, eating a whole lot and not eating at all sporadically. We want to spread it out throughout the day so that your body can manage it within certain ranges. And so that there is a lot of room for flexibility and to still honor what your body wants. And a lot of times we don't know about these things because we're just so used to thinking about, oh, you have a condition that means you need to strictly eliminate this or that or that. And so, so it's really going to depend on a person's individual case. And I'm just using this as a, the one example to say that we can have a lot of misconceptions around what managing our nutrition for health could even mean and look like. And I want to just encourage you and open your mind up to the fact that even with certain conditions, there are ways that we can incorporate aspects of intuitive, intuitive eating and honoring your body while still optimizing and managing your certain health conditions. And I know a lot of practitioners who specialize in certain areas such as heart cardiovascular disease or hypertension or diabetes and still incorporate a non-diet approach like intuitive eating. So I want you to know that it's definitely possible. We had Dr. Dodell on the show a few weeks ago. Are you familiar with him? I'm not. He's on Instagram as everything endocrine. He's an endocrine oh, doctor. Oh, yeah. I yeah. do know him. Yeah. Okay. He he's did a fantastic job talking about some of those mechanisms as well. And I think what's difficult is that it's so difficult to access. You know, we can't possibly talk mm-hmm. about the, the difficulty with access and some of the privileges that you talked about. But I know, you know, when I hear from a lot of people who are unable to find wherever they live, a doctor who supports some of the concepts that we've talked about today, or who, you know, are limited to a military doctor who you know, some, sometimes even people go to their, you know, annual physical and everything is perfect. And the doctor still says, yeah, but you need to lose some weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah. so ah. frustrating when I hear that. I'm like, oh, so maybe just kind of as a, as a, a last measure before we break, do you have recommendations on where you find some of these resources? Like you said, you know, cardiologists are different kind of people who are working within this framework. Is there you know, places or resources where people might be able to locate some of those things. Cause I think it's hard. It's, it's super hard for a lot of people to, to find support resources for some of these needs that they have. Yeah, that is so true. And you know, that, that idea, the problem with the access and privilege is absolutely holds true in finding providers who can support us this way. I have two resources that I would like to share. So there's a Hayes Health Sheet Library, and I will make sure to give these resources to Stacey so, so you can share with your listeners. So there's a Health at Every Size Health Sheet Library online that that outlines different conditions, medical conditions, and how we can approach it from a non-diet approach. So that is a good starting point that they also have resources and documents that you can share with your current providers to nudge them in the direction of, you know, controlling weight that didn't work for me. And I would like to work for things, work on these things from a non-diet approach. Here is the evidence that I have found. So that's one 
one resource that we can look at. And also there's a free Facebook group. I have to look up the actual name of it. I think it's just Health at Every Size Facebook group. It's a free Facebook group. And a great way that a lot of my clients have found success using that one is, is because there's a lot of people in it, both providers and just, you know, general people in all places of the country and maybe even internationally, that often people ask for recommendations for certain providers in a certain area. And a lot of my clients have had a lot of luck finding people that way. In the first database that I shared, the Health Hayes Health Sheet Library, there's also a provider search in that website as well. But that one may be a little bit more limited and not have as many. But the free Facebook group can also be another resource where you can start to search for providers in your area. Wonderful. We will definitely put links to both of those in the show notes for you. And listeners, I want to thank you. And Mia, I want to thank you. I have really enjoyed talking with you and picking your brain. We didn't even get to everything that we had hoped to talk about. So I'm sure there will be more conversation to come. But listeners, if you enjoyed Mia as much as I did, definitely connect with her at foodbody.peace on Instagram. That's P-E-A-C-E and her website foodbodypeace.com for group or one-on-one coaching. And I'm sure all your links to social and all of that kind of stuff is there on your website as well, right? Yes. Okay, awesome. So listeners, if you want to hear more, we're going to be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, the best place to ask questions as well. If you love the show that we create here and produce ourselves, a Patreon is a great way to support the show. But so is leaving a review, hitting the follow or subscribe button in the podcast app that you're using, sharing it on social media, and any other way you can think of so that others can find us too. And Mia, I just, again, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've made time out of your very busy schedule to join us today and appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really enjoy talking with you too. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.